0: Welcome back to marvel's voices i'm your host andre lee Grochet, and today i talk to writer and comic book artist terry blass now if you haven't heard terry's name you have definitely seen his work he's done educational comics for fox graphic novels and his artwork is even in wait for it rick and morty y'all i have a very very strong love for pickle rick but that's not what we're here for today because now he is writing a mini-series all about Reptile, everyone's favorite superhero with dinosaur powers. I mean, really, what's better than a superhero who can turn parts of his body into dinosaur parts? It's every kid's dream. so excited about this let's start off with the easiest thing if you were at a party if you were meeting someone for the first time if you literally just like walked into la and you were like hey this is my friend terry terry how would you introduce yourself to someone because you've got so many titles like i'm just gonna let you do
1: it. <laughs> i'd say hi i'm terry i make comics is what i'd say <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if if they asked what I did, you know, like fine. But it's difficult because I write and draw comics. I typically write more now, but I started out doing cover illustration and some interior stuff. So, you know, every once in a while I do both. So it's kind of hard to say like, I just do one or the other. So
0: I love that because if folks have been paying attention to your work, you know, just spoilers, currently you're writing the miniseries Reptile, which is so adorable <laughs> you, you actually did a variant cover
1: i did for issue three he's like adorned very like aztec kind of warrior style still turning into a dinosaur because that's what he do
0: <laughs> i mean you know dinosaurs have no culture they are just dinosaurs they're universal right <laughs> they fit everywhere yeah. literally any continent you go on
1: <laughs> <laughs> they are universal they're all over Yeah, it's been a really great series and I've had so much fun doing it. It'll be four issues. So yeah, everybody check it out.
0: Talk to me though about how, because you are a writer, you are an artist because you've done, people will call them articles, but you've done these beautiful pieces for Vox where they are basically stripped base comics. They're sequential, but they have a lot of really social political messaging in it, which I love, love, love,
1: which we'll get to. But
0: how do you... Because you're originally from the Midwest. I guess we can call it the Midwest.
1: I think people in Idaho like to call it the Pacific Northwest. And I'm like, you don't touch the Pacific. <laughs> yeah, I was
0: about to say, like, I was like I've had conflicting messages, but yeah. Idaho is...
1: I think it's just in a, it's you know, it's a state of its own. I, I, am, I am originally from, well, I was born in Fort Ord, California. So on a military base. And pretty quickly, my family moved to Boise, Idaho, which is where my dad is pretty much from. He's from Idaho. So I grew up there and... Most summers, would we would do our best to go visit my mom's family, who is from a Mecca, Mecca, Mexico. So about an hour and a half outside of Mexico City. And I grew up speaking English and Spanish. You know, in the 90s, there weren't a ton of Latinos in Idaho, but now there are. That's very different now. But yeah, I grew up there mostly. And then when I was 16, my dad retired from the military and I moved with my parents to Ixtapa, Mexico. Like, I don't know if you've seen The Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> But yes, where, many,
0: many times. It is it is a national treasure.
1: Where Morgan Freeman escapes to, Zihuatanejo. That's where I lived for like six, seven months. 100 degrees all the time, 100% humidity. I wanted to die. Came back to the States, finished high school, and then moved to New York for a couple years. Lived in the Bronx. Moved to LA after that. Lived in LA or just north of LA for about four years. And now I've been in Portland for about 16 years. So that's sort of what led me to making actually these many, I call them educational comics too, because being in Portland, I am in the whitest major city in the country. So I felt like I encountered a lot of people who were using the terms Hispanic and Latino interchangeably. And, you know, my understanding is those two terms are different. They don't mean the same thing. And that made me want to do these little educational sort of, you know, six page comics, just sort of expanding on what those terms mean to me and how i identify.
0: So, for people who may not know, what is the difference?
1: Well, <laughs> so here's the thing. What i like about short educational comics is, you know, i didn't write a 20-page dissertation on the subject. I did a short comic explaining basically what those terms mean. And if you think of the terms, break them down in their language, Latino can refer to Latin America. So, someone who comes from a country in Latin America or is descended from, you know, someone from a country of Latin America. Hispanic or Spanish is someone who comes from a country whose primary language is Spanish speaking. And some of my friends from Brazil are like, "Yeah, don't call me Hispanic. I don't speak Spanish. We speak Portuguese here. But you can call me Latino cuz we're in Latin America." And on the flip side of that, you have Spain where, you know, that's a country in Europe it's not a country in Latin America. You know, Spanish people are, from my understanding, European. (laughs) So, you know, a lot of people from Spain say, you know, I'm Hispanic, but I'm not Latino. So again, I'm not telling anyone how to identify, telling you how I identify. That's something that's very personal nowadays. And I think that, you know, what led me to also make you say Latinx, which is a sequel comic to that because that's a term that I feel is very divisive amongst the Latino or Latinx community. And I'm not telling anyone how to identify, but I feel like the most basic thing we can do as human beings is refer to others the way they want to be referred to. And so I wanted to explain what that term means to me and why being inclusive is a good thing.
0: I love it. So why did you decide that it was gonna be comics, strips, sequential art, that was
1: your way of telling these stories? In general, I feel like, you know, combining words and pictures, there's something magical about that. It's the best way I have to tell the stories that I want to tell. In specific to these comics, I think that when you have an educational comic and you hand it to someone, it's inevitable. They start reading it right away. They look at the pictures and they kind of start, they get into it. If you hand someone a pamphlet with text of like, here's this thing, please read this. They're like, "Mm -hmm, okay. And they put it in their pocket and they're like, I'll read it later. You know, and we have this weird thing in the United States, I think, where we revere great literature and we revere great art, but you put the two of them together and suddenly it's like, what, something for children? I find that kind of ridiculous. So I think comics for me are one of the last great, you know, interactive art forms. You get to decide how long it takes you to move from panel to panel. You get to, you know, hear the voices in your head. So I think there's something magical about comics and especially educational comics where they can break down really grand and sort of complex ideas into something that's easily digestible. And hopefully, you know, if that starts a conversation about what those terms mean, I think that's great. You know, we're living in a country and in a day and age where there's 50 plus million Latinx people in this country and 30 plus million of those are Mexican. You know, we number almost an entire quarter of this country. And I don't think that's, it's obviously not represented across the board in movies, TV, books, comics, you know, we represent about 2% of that entire, you know, demographic. And that's kind of, it's kind of not right. <laughs> it's not kind of not right. It's not right. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't agree more for a multitude of
0: reasons we have already discussed, mm-hmm. but you know, I think I want to take a step back. The way you talk about comics is really near and dear. Comics are really important to you and they have been for a very long time. How did you start with comics? What's the first comics you picked up? And what characters for you first struck you that like just grabbed you and brought you in?
1: My parents got me a subscription to Disney Adventures Magazine. (laughs) And in the back were comics that were largely like Mickey Mouse, you know, Uncle Scrooge. But they also published at the time Bone by Jeff Smith in some of those Disney adventures. And, you know, I latched onto that. I loved that series. I was also the perfect age for the 90s X-Men animated series. You know, that led me to more X-Men comics because I was like, I need to know more about this lightning goddess. I need to know more about... Like, who are these characters and this great metaphor for being different and being an outsider? I was also the right age for, like, Gen 13, and that had some queer characters in it, which I hadn't seen much in in comics up to that point. But, yeah, I feel like latching onto that outsider metaphor that, you know, for me, queer metaphor in X-Men, I think made me feel partly seen. And for me, the type of writer and the type of creator that I want to be, that I feel like hopefully I am, I acknowledge the fact that for me, stories aren't plot, they're emotion. Stories are connection. If you think about the stories that you really love or your favorite movie or your favorite comic... You connected to it for some reason. You either felt seen or you felt re- you could relate to that character. And that tells me that stories, and comics for me are the highest you know, form of story, that stories serve to make us feel less alone. If stories are about connection and wanting to be seen and representation, then that is the function of story, is that they help us feel less alone. So, yeah, that's uh, the X-Men are who I really latched on as a young kid. Those comics... I was definitely one of those 90s X-Men nerds.
0: I love the fact, it's the story of so many of us where we either saw a movie, we saw Blade, or we Mm -hmm. saw Howard the Duck, or we saw the X-Men comics or the Spider-Man animated. And then we're like, oh, let me go look into the comics. Once you get to the comics though, something's gotta keep you there.
1: Yeah, for me, it was the story of Rogue, especially because I was raised in such a religious community and I knew from a young age that I was gay there was this idea of like, so who you are is all right, just don't act on it. Just don't touch someone that you shouldn't be touching. Just don't engage in that behavior. So this idea that Rogue was someone who could potentially be, you know, very powerful, I felt like Well, damn, like if one of y'all would just take me to a Broadway musical and just let me be me, you know, I might not be hiding my candle, my light under a bushel. You might see me shine. You might see me, you know, thrive or flourish. So Rogue was a character I really heavily identified with as a teenager. I was like, oh, man, she kissed a boy and all this bad stuff happened. Oh, oh, man.
0: (laughs) And I've never thought about it in that way. But yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I unfortunately, I don't feel like I really, really saw myself represented in any kind of media until I was an adult. Because I wasn't someone who caught my so-called life <laughs> when I was a teen and saw Ricky, this like queer Latino kid that sort of passed me by. The first time I saw myself was when um, Justin Suarez in Ugly Betty, <laughs> this like young gay Mexican boy who's obsessed with like Golden Girls and whatever, you know, Great. He's like, I can't eat flan, it'll go straight to my butt. Like, yeah, I just felt like that representation was so minimal and and that's why I feel like writing Reptil has been so healing for me, for my soul, and you know, something that just makes me feel good putting it out into the universe. This representation for more Latinos and more Mexicans and yeah.
0: I love it. Okay, so I gotta ask, you kinda touched a little bit on growing up religious. How did you go? from doing missionary work as a Mormon, Uh and let me be clear, when we talk about religious, we are talking about the Mormon church, to making artwork for Rick and Morty. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it's like, sir.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I refer to Mormonism as a high demand religion. Okay. So no tea, no shade to anyone who's like, say, Catholic or whatever. It's just my example. But when a Catholic person is like, oh, I grew up religious too. I'm like, girl, did you go to... Mass on Christmas and Easter. Honey, I went to church three times a week. I gave up two years of my life, morning, noon, and night, preaching about you know Mormon Jesus. So high demand religion, meaning you must pay your tithing, you must do this, you must, you know, every week. It's, it's a lot. And from a young age, I attribute the fact that I'm Mexican to me not fully committing in my youth to these ideas that I was being taught in church. Because when I hear in church, you know, being gay is a sinful lifestyle choice. I'm like, wait a minute. A choice is when you wake up in the morning and say oatmeal or waffles and you decide between the two. Right. I was like, I didn't choose who my parents were. Not in any negative way. I'm super proud of being Mexican. I'm super proud of my ancestry and my heritage. So I said, I didn't choose who my parents were. I also don't feel like I chose to have these feelings, these emotions that I'm having towards people I'm not supposed to, quote unquote, have these feelings for. So I didn't like believe fully in that religion as a kid, but because of my situation, I literally kind of just gave into the sunken place for, you know, decades until I was 21. And when I finished my mission, I I flew to Boise, I bought a car, I drove straight to LA, and I never went to church again. (laughs) I did it. I was like, I'm done. I'm an adult now. I can do whatever I want. And, you know, it took me a while to, I think, come out to my parents and to like fully just not be afraid to just live my life out in the open the way I wanted to. But when you go on a mission, you can't watch movies, television. You can't read anything but the Bible or the Book of Mormon. You can't speak to your family on the phone. It's a very specific program. And for someone whose life was pop culture, was comics, was movies, my therapist, I am not shy about saying that I see one. She was like, yeah, you talk about it like you were in prison. You know, she's like, it stripped you of everything you loved. So no wonder now you embrace those things fully because you can. I always loved animation, always loved comics, and I was always drawing. On your free day, like your day where, you're, where you get to kind of relax and do whatever you're supposed to be studying, all the other missionaries would be playing basketball. Ugh. So I always had a sketch pad and I would always just draw. That was the only form of entertainment I could have was just drawing in a sketch pad. And I didn't get to do it often, but it was my one thing I got to do. I don't know how that goes from, you know, maybe it's because I never really fully committed to Mormonism. It's not like I had to be like, but wait, Rick and Morty says crass words. (laughs) I just didn't care. You know, I was like, I love this cartoon. It's hilarious. It's funny. I was asked to do a couple covers for it. And if you notice, the second cover I did for Rick and Morty was Summer driving like a space car with Rick and Morty in the back. And it's a parody of the poster for Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. One of
0: the greatest movies ever made. I love
1: it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but... I've watched that movie so much.
0: (laughs) Back on track, though. So it feels like pop culture was your way of finding your voice in all of this. It was your way of figuring out how you reconciled between what was happening outside and what was happening inside. Why do you feel it was artwork that was your like outlet? And what do you feel like was your biggest influences or impacts as a kid?
1: I definitely know that some of my huge influences when I was a kid were Disney films. I was definitely a Disney kid. I was eight years old when my dad took me to see The Little Mermaid in the movie theater. <laughs> and you know I'd seen cartoons before that, obviously, and had been drawing. So I was at this age where I could see and understand that what I was actually watching were drawings that someone had done, and put in an order to make, move, and come to life. And comics and animation have that in common in a way where, you know, comics are sequential drawings, but in space, you know, in a different space. And animation is sequential drawings in time, you know, all together in the same space. So Disney films were huge for me. Glenn Keane, you know, Andreas Deja, those, like, great animators that did a lot of stuff in the 90s was super influential. Also, I super imprinted hard on, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer when I was 16. I was like, this is a character who... She has a secret. She's in high school. High school is hell, (laughs) literally. Can't tell anyone about... There's a great episode where she, like, comes out to her mom as a slayer, and that kind of can mean so much to so many different people. But for me, I was like, oh, this is a coming out scene that had some great queer representation in the show later as well. But, yeah, just stories about characters who i think they're like an outsider there's something that's keeping them from i think being their full self you know that really was influential for me i also read a ton as a kid i read like all of the oz books like all 13 or 14 of them (laughs) i lived very close to a library when i was a kid and i remember at that time they started finally carrying comics at the library so that was great
0: it seems to me that you found your voice in reconciling between what was happening outside and what was happening inside through artwork.
1: Yeah, drawing was sort of like, in a way, it was sort of a shield to save myself from, I think, ridicule or being made fun of. I was the kid who could draw stuff. That also did translate into a strange sort of arena where I was then afraid to draw men because I didn't want someone to be like, oh, why are you drawing like a handsome man or a muscled superhero dude, you know? I felt like that was exposing a dangerous secret about me. So I drew a lot of Disney princesses. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I think drawing was a shield in a way. And it was also, I felt like it was something that as a kid, I was good at. And because we've spoken about sort of my upbringing, I think that for queer kids, a lot of our childhood is sort of taken from us in a way where... In school, you know, we're worried about other things when we should be worried about, like, our grades. So when I'm given something that I feel like I'm good at, but in the back of my mind, I am afraid that maybe if I come out, I could be rejected, my family could reject me, you know, that eventually didn't happen. But when those are the fears that you have, I like to tell young kids who have a similar upbringing to me, if you find something you're good at, and you really focus on that when things are difficult, that can turn into a skill that you could turn into a job. And then that job can help you have a good life. You know, if you live in some small town and you feel like you're being persecuted and things stink, find something you love to do. Become an expert at it. And it doesn't even need to be drawing, you know? like. What if you're an expert at birds? <laughs> you know. First some... of
0: all, Chris Cooper is a birder, and second of all, Gloria Steinem wanted to be a tap dancer, and she's exactly in Ohio, so. Yeah.
1: And Chris is amazing. Everything he says in the episode of this podcast, I was like, snapping, yes, yes, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, he is amazing. As are you. You are a very determined, very hardworking person. Like the amount of work that you've been able to do is pretty incredible. Just on the writing and the artwork, because that's a unique space to be in. Do you feel like your upbringing, because you, you have said you have the three M's, do you feel <laughs> like you feel like your upbringing, your childhood, also kind of, because I know even for me, my little bit of military training helps keep me focused when you do find that thing that you love and you, you are like, I'm going to be good at this.
1: Absolutely. So my Mexican military Mormon <laughs> upbringing, I feel has made me, in some ways, a very organized person. Also, a very hardworking person who thrives off of communication and meetings. (laughs) Okay. So, my dad, being a retired colonel, you know, gave me a lot of advice when I started college. I went to art school in Portland at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. And he said, when you get an assignment, do it right away. Because... You're gonna go to three or four more classes that week and you're gonna get more assignments. And then if you don't do any of them, like, you know, when you get them, you're gonna be overwhelmed. You know, I create to-do lists. I create checklists. I love checking something off or crossing something off a list. It feels really good, but I feel like a lot of it comes from survival. Someone's like, how do you write so much and how do you find the time? I was like, I don't have any other, that's how I live. I like to eat. (laughs) That's how I buy my, that's how I buy food. So it's not so much that like, oh, I'm so dedicated and so have so much passion for my art. I do, but it's also the only way (laughs) that I have to make. I don't have another job. I worked retail for four years after graduating art school and then took the crazy, scary leap to just work on comics full time. And when you don't have anything else to fall back on, you know, you sink or you swim. (laughs) And I learned to swim real fast.
0: It's so funny to me how many of us worked in some kind of retail or food industry job before we were like,
1: all right, here we go. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. And I think that that job also helped me because I said, I'm not going to be someone who just, I'm going to be in debt for the rest of my life with student loans with a degree that I'm not using. I don't think so. So I said, I'm going to work at this job. I worked at Ikea for like four years. And I said... I am going to produce one page of comics per week. Just one. Because when you're working 40 hours a week, you come home and you're tired, right? And one doesn't sound like a lot. But when you have to write, pencil, ink, erase, scan, clean, color, letter, create the blog post, that's a lot. And I said, while I'm working at this job, I might be here for a few years, but if I produce one page of comics a week, in a few years, I'm going to have hundreds of pages and I will have proven to myself and to editors that I can make a deadline. I can create one for myself. And if I can create one for myself and meet it, I can do that for you. I don't have time <laughs> to waste. I don't have time to, you know, I'm I'm in my 40s now. I don't. I don't think I'm like super old, but I also don't think I'm young. And I am in a spot where I want to put out as much work as I can into the world because before when we were speaking about Latinx representation. That's super important to me. And because I haven't seen too many representations or reflections of myself out there in the world, you know, the Latin experience I've seen on TV or in books is not my experience. There's not just one Latin experience. We're not all, you know, what, gangsters (laughs) or drug dealers like they show on TV. There's some great, wonderful, Latinas who are producing incredible TV like Tanya Saracho with her show Vita and, you know, Gloria Calderon Kellett with One Day at a Time. And there's some great representation there, but we could always use more. You and I have talked a little bit of the power yeah. of more than one, right?
0: Well, and, then, and it kind of goes back to like one of the things that is really rooted in the theme of this season, which is this authenticity of voice and what it means for authenticity and genuineness coupled with what is the opposite of narrative scarcity? I guess the opposite of narrative scarcity is a plethora of different voices, right? And that's the whole concept is, how do you bring multitudes of voices? Not just you know, a Mexican-American voice, but a Mexican-American voice from Idaho who lives in Portland. Yo, there's a lived yeah. experience that you have that my cousins in Louisiana who were Mexican-American and kind of grew up more Creole and Catholic, like it's a completely different experience. They're both those experiences are
1: valid. And doesn't that by default make it interesting? What if there was a story about someone whose Latinx experience was more like mine and meet another Latinx person whose experience was more like your cousin's? We'd be like, whoa, that's a great story right there. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, and I think I I love that because that kind of gets us to your work on reptile right because mm-hmm. for folks who have been reading it if you're not reading it you need to go pick it up you can pick it up now because it's fun and amazing and look it is a superhero that turns into a dinosaur yo like
1: yeah his cousin in that comic is like uh you have the power every kid wants
0: <laughs> i mean you literally get to be a dinosaur and as a person who very very vividly remembers one of the first books she read that was over a certain amount of pages was jurassic park and then lost world and i couldn't stop reading them come on you get an amulet and you get to turn into a dinosaur what what Mm -hmm. but like you know (laughs) it's not a new character it has been around in comics for a while but you specifically came aboard onto this kind of update to the character and really wanted to bring a lot of different representation, you know, him having primos and, and like the, the relationship between Julian and Ava and like what that meant to Beto as a kid. Like, what does that mean to Umberto as a kid to have those cousins around him that are now in these adventures with him? In approaching this, one, how did the opportunity come about? And then two, when this opportunity came about, I know your brain immediately went to, I got to do this.
1: The opportunity came through an email that my agent sent me, like, hey, look at this. (laughs) And there were a few editors who asked if I would be interested in writing a pitch for this series. They wanted to give Reptile a solo series for the first time. And, well, my first reaction was, duh, of course I'll do this. Are you kidding me? Marvel was my thing as a kid. You know, I I never thought. I, I thought it was a career goal that I might one day achieve, like, when I'm 85 and I'm like, you know, someone might come to me and be like, hey, do you want to maybe write this thing? So I never thought it would come when it did, but I was like, one, yes. Two, I've never heard of this character. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm Mexican American and I love dinosaurs. How have I never heard about this character? And I love teen books. I love young adult. That's mostly what my work encompasses. But I hadn't come across Avengers Academy or Avengers Arena. I read a lot of Young Avengers. You know, I read a lot of Generation X back in the day. But I thought if this character is a kid that can turn into dinosaurs, he should be every comic book kid's favorite character. He should be the most popular character. And I thought this is a good opportunity to talk about representation. Why do people not know who he is? I said, this has to be part of the story. Someone has to tell him, you're a hero, but nobody knows who you are. Almost in the way of like, why does everybody know about Kamala? Why does everybody know about Wiccan? But there's like 30 plus million Mexicans in this country. Why are you not a visible hero for us? And I wanted to create that sort of journey for him. You know, with his powers, he sort of hulks out (laughs) when he turns full dinosaur and can't control it. And I was like, he doesn't want to hurt anybody. So he resists sort of doing that. And in resisting doing that, he's also resisting learning how to control it. And we talked about, you know, when you're just trying to survive, you can't thrive. And that's sort of the position he finds himself in. You mentioned narrative, like, scarcity. And for me, the opposite of that is narrative accuracy and authenticity. And what I mean by that is, I was like, okay, well, if it's a solo series about him, he's going to have cousins. I'm sorry, a lot of us Mexicans have a lot of cousins. (laughs) So that just has to happen. And I said, if this is gonna be largely about Mexicans, I need to move this story to Los Angeles. You know, so lots of little things like that. It was such a great opportunity. I was so happy to work on it. You know, when I pitched the idea, I said, cool, he's gonna have cousins. One of them has to be an awesome girl. One of them has to be gay.
0: <laughs> well, and that actually, like everything you just said, is kind of encapsulated. Spoilers: I have read the third issue, and there's this one scene where they're fighting off some raptors. I believe are the mm-hmm. are they are they raptors? They're raptors, and they're trying to figure out some answers about this mysterious villain that they're dealing with, who also has an amulet. You know, he basically he goes into dinosaur mode. And one of his cousins gets injured and he is really dealing with a lot of emotions that I think a a young adult, a teenager would deal with because Cousins are very important. And there are these moments where Julian, his cousin, who has come out to his parents, really has some words of advice about focus and words of advice about determination. And then like Ava's like, I need y'all to get it together, though. And it's such a wonderful chemistry that each one of them has a very unique voice. And those kind of work together to push the plot along. What were your inspirations for Julian and Ava?
1: My inspirations for them largely come from the literal, I want to show something I wish I had when I was a kid. The fastest growing demographic in the United States is the college educated Latina. So where are the characters? Where are the Latinas who are like book smart, who are brave, who are strong, who are cool? I wanted that to be Ava. She's already taking college courses. She's been studying how to do some things. I don't want to spoil stuff, you know on her own. She's very kind of DIY, I'll figure this out myself. And Julian is the character that I wish I'd seen when I was a kid. A gay kid who's not ashamed of who he is. Whose family has embraced him. Who is allowed to talk about his obsessions with Jumbo Carnation, with Dazzler, (laughs) you know. But that was definitely my inspiration. I wanted to show that um, everyone was useful for a different reason. Beto is in a mindset where he could have hurt, potentially even killed one of his cousins because he went full dinosaur and he's already lost his parents. So he's already gone through a trauma of, I don't know what happened to my parents. I lost them. My grandpa's old and sick. I don't have much more family, you know, for me. And I can't let this happen. And Julian has that conversation with him about how to overcome some of that anxiety, some of that worry and stress that is likely what's contributing to him not being able to control his powers.
0: I feel like you've already answered this, but I really want to dive into this idea of you being Mexican-American and writing a Mexican-American superhero. And you've kind of mentioned that you wish you would have seen characters like the ones you're writing now, whether it's Umberto or it's Julian, you know, for you what would it have meant to you to be able to see this kind of hero as a kid?
1: I firmly believe that when we're kids and we don't see ourselves reflected back to us as characters, that the message we're sent is that we don't exist. And that makes us feel lonely. It's why I feel like I don't feel like I've had to fight super hard for this, but why I am more than willing to, like, stand up and put my foot down about queer representation in media for kids. Queer adults were queer kids. And if we don't get to see ourselves, that does a number to us mentally. And I really needed there to be this representation with Reptil, with Julian. I think that, unfortunately, there's still... This stigma that anything queer is related to sex in the United States. And that comes from, I think, a religious sort of understanding of the material. You know, it's not a sex conversation. It's a love conversation. You know, your uncle so-and-so, he's with so-and-so, they love each other. That's it. It's not, you know, kids have a different, I think, understanding. I saw a great little video years and years ago of this kid whose uncle, his gay uncle, was introducing him to his partner and he was like, wait, you're you're husbands and husbands? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, I've seen husbands and wives before, but I've never seen husbands and husbands. He's like so excited about it. And then he goes, do you want to play ping pong? (laughs) Kids just, they get it and they move on. You know, I feel like that representation is so important, not just for the queer community, but for The Latinx community, when we're a community that contributes so much to the United States and we're such a diverse and vibrant community that I think is often, at least in the past several years, demonized in this country for, I don't know what, for no good reason.
0: You're taking on this book. You've got a Mexican-American superhero. You're building on his family. What did you feel like from your personal experience of bringing your authenticity of voice and then crafting this voice For this character, I feel like some of it was just natural and some of it was like, not unnatural, but you're like, nope, but we gotta do, like, this needs to be here. For instance, his nickname changed.
1: Yeah, previously in the comics, his nickname was Berto with an R. And that's fine, but I said when I pitched the book, I was like, his nickname is Beto. I'm changing it. I'm writing Beto. One, because Umberto is a long name to write in the script a million times. Two, because that's the nickname for Umberto, is Beto, And I just kind of know that because of my experience. And well, I thought I knew it and I verified with my friend Claudia and I was like, that's the nickname, right? She was like, yeah, that can be Betito, that can be, you know, whatever. And I just thought someone who may have written this previously, Notino Shade, I love some of the stuff that had been written about him previously, but because of who I am, I just might know that that's the case, and how would you know that that's something that you need to research, that it's an accurate nickname? You might just, oh, well, obviously shortening this makes it Berto. You might not know because of your experience. It
0: seems like you got a lot of love for dinosaurs, Terry. Did you do a lot of research on dinosaurs before Reptile, or did you already have this massive amount
1: of dino knowledge? It was sort of a slumdog millionaire experience, if, if you ask me, because I was like, oh, I grew up a little kid who knew like Parasaurolophus and Archaeopteryx. Like, I knew all of, like, how to say like all these dinosaur names. I was a dinosaur kid. I
0: was about to say, excuse me, not every kid knows how to say dinosaur names like that. What?
1: I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Ankylosaurus or Ankylosaurus, whichever one you want, is fine.
0: Were you like that kid that was like rattling off dinosaur? Fits? Oh, yeah, I
1: was like, um, Archaeopteryx was the first bird dinosaur and he was found in a limestone fossil. And yeah, <laughs> that was that kid. I had a great teacher when I was in like the second grade who did a whole dinosaur thing. I remember she drew a huge T Rex on the floor with like masking tape. And then she had us draw like Stegosaurus and all the plates. I looked it up on YouTube. It's on YouTube. But there was a song that was like, my name is Stegosaurus. I'm a funny looking d- The whole song. You
0: were made to write this miniseries.
1: Yes. I made a dinosaur diorama in that class. And I was so proud of myself because I was the only person who made a dinosaur and a dinosaur hatching out of an egg. And when Reptil was announced, I posted a picture of myself as a little kid in front of this diorama saying like, this kid <laughs> is getting to write a dinosaur book for Marvel. <laughs> And so because I felt like who I was in terms of a dinosaur kid, my experiences in Los Angeles, living there, my experiences living in Mexico and being Mexican-American, I was like, this book is kind of perfect for me to write. I I have experiences I can draw on and definite things I want to see. I said, Alley is my favorite place in L.A. because you get great Mexican food there. There are Mexican business owners there selling amazing stuff. You can get an amazing phone case for five bucks there. (laughs) Right? That's where you go if you want to, like, buy your fabric. It was, for me, a place of Mexican pride. And I was like, all right, that's a great place because of its vibrancy to have maybe a fight scene. So I can include that here. I knew that I wanted Beto and Julian to come across as best friends because I don't think you often get to see a best friendship shown between a straight boy and a gay boy. And I think if kids can see that... If straight boys can see that, they can say, oh, well, who cares that this kid's gay? That's just who he is. Why should I even think that's anything to be, you know, strange or worried about? I wanted to see a cool, strong, when I say strong, I mean intelligent and resourceful, you know, young girl. I definitely wanted their parent or their mom, Tia Gloria, Tia Glo. I was like, she's a doctor. Sorry. She's not like a maid. She's not. (laughs) I'm not doing that here. And they have a nice house in L.A. You know, I wanted it to be a very prideful, in a good way, Mexican experience for people to read through. That's why in the first issue they talk about this Chicano or Chicanx pride festival that's coming up. You know, Ava's gonna dance in it. You know, they've got a lot of cool things that's gonna happen in it. And I was like, why should I not throw every possible thing I can of Mexican pride into this book? For me, my, one of my favorite scenes is at the beginning of issue two, where you see a flashback of him on a dig with his parents and he asks his mom what her favorite dinosaur is. And she's like, oh, that's easy. She's like, it's Quetzalcoatlus. And he's like, say what, what was that? (laughs) And she's like, this is a dinosaur named after an Aztec god. It was the largest animal ever that flew. And having something incredible and powerful named after something Mexican means that we get to share that with the world and be proud of who we are. And I wanted that to be important. So hopefully it came across.
0: This is amazing because I'm also excited because you're going to be part of Marvel's Voices, that is, which was just announced.
1: Mm-hmm. I was asked to contribute a story expanding a little bit on someone that could potentially be a great new superhero within Marvel.
0: I'm so excited.
1: Yeah, this is going to be great.
0: Too. Comunidades is is one of the series of Marvel's Voices books, and I'm really excited because it is focused on Latinx culture, it's focused on Latinx creators and writers. Talk to me a little bit about what it means to be involved with this kind of project.
1: When I was working on Marvel Voices Pride, it was one of my first questions that kind of came up in my mind was, is this happening for the Latinx community? And the reason I thought of that was obviously because you know I've talked so much about how great in number we are in the country and the representation that we could have. But I thought some of my favorite Marvel characters are Latinx, America Chavez, Nova, you know, now Reptil, Miles Morales. (laughs) Like this just seems like it should happen. There's so many great characters. I began compiling a list of every Latinx Marvel character I could find and shared it with my editor (laughs) and was like, is this happening? Can this this happen? (laughs) And it means so much to me to be involved in it and to even be asked to contribute more to the Marvel Universe. Because, like I said, it's not something that I ever thought would really happen. And if I'm being honest, it kind of hasn't hit me yet. Like, I get an issue of Reptil and my name's on it and I'm like, oh, cool. Someone wrote this. <laughs> Whatever. My my partner reads it and he's like, yeah, I can hear your voice in this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like Reptil gets attacked, and the bad guy's like, "Give me your amulet." He's like, um, "I was about to eat. Do you know how long it's been since I've had authentic tacos? I've been living in New York, <laughs> like." <laughs> so, and I'm conscious of the fact that I'm trying to give Umberto his own voice, not have it be my voice, but. Um, but also, tacos are important. Right. I mean, who doesn't love some great tacos? But yeah, I think that doing. Comunidades is such a great opportunity and it will be a comic that I know I will treasure forever. I can't imagine what it must be to be a young kid, a young Hispanic or Latinx kid and see that book. Especially a young young woman because there's like America Chavez, oh my gosh, it's too good. And I love her current series. It's expanding on her origin in such an interesting way where it gives you a lot of like Puerto Rican, Boricua pride for her as a character. Before I was like, wait, so she's from the Utopian Paro? Like, is Puerto Rico in, does it exist in that world? (laughs) Like, I don't know. And you know, now you think you got a lot of great pride for that character. The Latinx community is so diverse that with Miles, you can have, you know, Afro-Latino, you can have Puerto Rican with America, Mexican with Reptile. I just think that it's such a cool, fun book that I am so happy to be part of.
0: I don't have any other better way to finish this interview. I am so excited for folks to read all of the stories you have coming up. And if you have not read Reptile yet, go pick it up. Pick it up now. Issue three is out now. And if people want to see your other work, where should they go?
1: I'm very easy to find (laughs) on Twitter and Instagram. It's just my name, Terry Blass, T-E-R-R-Y-B-L-A-S. And my website is terryblast.com. It needs a little update. Don't judge.
0: Terry, I I know you have a best friend, but I'm just letting you know that I'm, I'm putting my application in.
1: Best friend is a tier, okay? It's not a specific, it's a tier. So we're good.
0: Thank you so much to Terry for coming on Marvel's Voices. Make sure you check out his reptile mini series. It's out now. Issue three just came out last week and you don't want to miss it. And definitely don't miss next week's episode of Marvel's Voices. I'll be talking to Day Al-Muhammad, an author, filmmaker, and disability policy strategist, and Jose Alaniz, professor at the University of Washington about the representation of disability in Marvel Comics. Marvel's Voices is produced by me, Angelique Rocher, Alexis Williams, and Isabel Robertson. Our creative producer is Harry Goh, our development manager is Brad Barton, our production manager is Larissa Rosen, and our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Ynina.